0: Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for our night of study, our time in your Word. We thank you, Father, for this uh, church and for this crowd that wants to come and hear your Word. I thank you, Father, for the Spirit who's with us and teaching us. Uh, Father, I thank you that we are um, mindful of these things in a day and in an age when so many others in the body of Christ seem to be uh, absorbed with other things. And, Lord, we, we know that there is a complexity to our life as we follow you and walk with you and many things intrude upon our day and many demands are placed upon us and Lord that's uh, to be expected but there is that time in life Father where you ask us to sit at your feet and to be still and know you are the Lord and to listen to your word and that time comes infrequently for many of us Father we thank you that it comes at least weekly here and that we would stop the world around us and put our minds to what you have for us tonight Father something in the word tonight will will touch us and change us and move us in a new and better direction. That is, if we're listening. So we ask, Lord, you would speak to us in that way. Give us something new. Give us something better. Uh, Give us something that will draw us closer to you and bring us a day closer to the kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, we begin what I think is the most fascinating part of the book of Ezekiel. Some would maybe argue... Uh, one of the most fascinating parts of the whole of the Bible, uh, certainly in the Old Testament, the visions of the kingdom temple. Now, before I go into this complex topic, I've got to help us get our bearings, both in terms of where we are in the study and also some background for what we'll study in these chapters. And you can understand it simply as God fulfilling His promises to the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. So He's telling Ezekiel... And through Ezekiel, Israel, here's how you're going to get all the things I've promised you, despite the fact that right now you're sitting in exile in Babylon. And chapters 33 through 48 tell that story. And as you notice, in each case, the promises being broken down into their constituent parts, a king, a land, a people of peace, and then God dwelling among his people, those four general categories that come out of those two covenants, they're broken out into two chapters each for the most part. So 33 and 34 were the king, 35 and 36 was the land, 37 and 38 was the people of peace, 39 and 40 onward are the story of God dwelling among his people. Now it's in that last section, chapters 40 through 48, that we now find ourselves, part two, if you will, of that prophecy. And it's so much longer than not just the first part, but of any of the other parts, because this is where God wants us to put our emphasis. This is on God dwelling among Israel. In the earlier part, chapter 39, he showed how he was going to make himself known to the Gentile nations in the kingdom. And that's where we saw the second half of Ezekiel's war. That is when God defeats the invaders who come against the land of Israel, and then that leads to that seven-year spectacle of burning and so on. It causes the nations on earth to recognize, perhaps some of them for the first time, that the true and one and only God dwells in Israel. And for some of you, you're thinking, well, wait a minute, in the kingdom, wouldn't that have already been settled? Now the answer is no. Remember, there's unbelievers in the kingdom. There is disobedience in the kingdom. Christ is ruling over all of that. And at the very end of that thousand-year ring, God makes abundantly clear that he has been there from the beginning in the temple, in the land of Israel. And his presence there is shown by how he defeats the invading armies that come against Israel. He says in Ezekiel 39, verse 21, this is a summary of what we learned last week. He says, I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see my judgment which I have executed, and my hand which I have laid upon them, speaking of the invaders. And the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day onward. All right, so both Israel and the Gentile nations come to the end of the thousand-year kingdom with an understanding that Israel's God is the only God, and He dwells in Israel. Now, beyond that display that we've studied, the Lord will also manifest himself to Israel in a particularly special manner, consistent with how he's done so in the past for them. That is, he will set up a dwelling place, a house, in which he will put his glory among his people, a temple, and it will become the center of Jewish life in the kingdom. And. Just as he dwelled earlier in the tabernacle in the desert, later in the temple in the promised land, he'll do it again now in this temple in the kingdom. But as is typically the case, the Lord's earlier manner is a foreshadowing, a small taste of what he plans to do in fulfilling all things in that day to come. So in other words, while Solomon's temple was pretty impressive and Herod's temple was another thing on top of that, they pale in comparison to what will be built for the kingdom. So chapters 40 through 48 offer us virtually the only description in the Bible of the kingdom temple. There are some brief mentions of it in some of the other Old Testament prophets and in Revelation, but nothing like this. And Ezekiel begins, and I'm just going to give you a little brief overview of what you're going to see in these nine chapters. You you can write this down if you want, or we'll come back to it as we move on. But here's the brief overview. In chapters 40 through 42, you get a physical description of the temple, of the complex itself. And then in the first half of 43, we're going to watch the Lord's glory return to dwell in that temple for the first time since the Babylonian captivity. In the second half of 43 and then onward to 46, that's where you get into the worship system. We get to hear about how they actually use the temple and all of the details of worship. And then finally, in the last two chapters, 47 and 48, you learn about some of the geographical changes in the land of Israel, some of the borders that are set up, some of the things that have to change in the land itself in order to accommodate this massive new temple and all that goes on in it. All right, so in effect, what you get in these nine chapters is God taking Ezekiel on a guided tour of the temple for the kingdom, and we're just along for the ride in this tour. The length of the section is telling you about how important it is that he considers his presence dwelling among Israel to be the height, the ultimate demonstration of his glory and his grace. And the fact that he chooses to make Israel his home will communicate how special Israel is to him. Because only Israel gets this in the kingdom. So the nation now sitting in exile, hearing what Ezekiel is telling them. This is going back now to the time of Nebuchadnezzar as Ezekiel was writing all of this down. They hear this testimony, and it's a cause for some hope, a cause for some a reason to look forward to the future despite where they're sitting at that time, that the Lord has not forsaken them, that He's not going to destroy them. He will fulfill His promises to them. So let's begin with an introduction. I'm going to simply do this. I'm going to read the first four verses of chapter 40 in Ezekiel, then we'll go back to Genesis. And and we'll do that because there's a fundamental question we have to answer tonight before we get into the temple proper. But I'll let Ezekiel introduce it here. Verse 1. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year after the city was taken, on that same day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me there. In the visions of God, he brought me. Into the land of Israel, and set me on a very high mountain, and on it, to the south, there was a structure like a city. So he brought me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze, with a a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. The man said to me, Son of man, see with your eyes, hear with your ears, and give attention to all that I'm going to show you, for you've been brought here in order to show it to you. Declare to the house of Israel all that you see. This is Ezekiel's final uh, dated prophecy within the prophecies of this book. The date there corresponds to April 19th, 573 B.C., at least on the religious calendar. But it would also date to a date in the fall, if you go by the civil calendar. And that's more likely what this is, is a civil calendar date. And I'll tell you why in a second. But first, this is 12 years since the last message that Ezekiel was given to talk to the exiles. It's the final one he writes in the book. It's actually his next to last one he actually receives. The final one he actually receives by date is the one we studied way back in chapter 29 when he was looking at the prophecies against Egypt. But he saves this one for last, puts it at the end of the book, even though it was the next to last one he received, because it's so significant, not only in the content, but in the date. The date he received it here. He says he received this on the very same day that the city of Jerusalem fell. So the day that Nebuchadnezzar broke through the walls and crushed the city for the final time, and in the process destroyed the temple, on that same day, he was getting visions of the next temple. As the first, as the second one was burning, in um, or the first one, sorry, was burning in the city of Jerusalem, he was seeing the last one in his vision. And this date is significant for a second reason. Again, if we go by the civil calendar. That is, if it, the civil calendar and the Jewish religious calendars are offset by six months. Okay, So in the religious calendar, it's April for, some, for this date. In the civil calendar, it's September. And in September, on this particular date, you have the Day of Atonement. So the Day of Atonement is on this very same day, and that would make this vision much more fitting. That is, the old temple's destruction and the vision of the new temple occurring on the same day that is appointed for the cleansing of Israel's sin. And it seems to be highly symbolic. That would make it fitting. And then next, notice the vision he receives is centered on a very high mountain. It starts with a very high mountain. Now, Israel has plenty of mountains, including some that are very high. But this high mountain is something very different than anything today. And according to Isaiah, who speaks about the same thing, he says it's the highest mountain on earth in the time of the temple. And he says in Isaiah 2.2, uh, 2, he says, Now it will come about that in the last days... The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So that phrase, the chief of the mountains, it means the highest mountain. So But that doesn't mean necessarily it's as high as, say, Mount Everest is today. That's not the necessity, because all the mountains of the the earth will have been made low in the time of tribulation. So we don't know exactly how high the new mountains will be. But whatever they are, this is the biggest. And you can already see then that the kingdom temple and the surrounding area is going to be dramatically different from what we know today. This is not a recreation of something we've seen. This is an all-new thing. A tall mountain, yet so tall and broad that it can hold a temple far larger than any that have ever existed before. Ezekiel says on the south end of this top of the mountain, you find this structure. And the structure is as large as a city. And the temple itself, which we'll see in coming chapters, is in fact quite large. In verse 3, Ezekiel says the Lord brings him to that city, and in that city he meets a man. The man is going to be the tour guide. So uh, for those of you who go to Israel with me, this is pretty much the same way it's going to work. You're going to meet me at the gate, and we're going to go in, and we're going to see things. Uh, after I've spent a week ahead of time in Israel, I will be bronze also. But in this case, it doesn't refer to tan. It refers to uh, strength and the glowing fire of glory. That is a common picture of, of, a, of uh, an angelic or divine messenger. And in fact, this, this description is so brief, we really can't know for sure who we're looking at. Although it does share some similarity to what Daniel sees in chapter 10. Uh, in his account. And remember, Daniel's in a, a contemporary of Ezekiel. They wrote at the same time, so it could be the same personage that Daniel reports. In any case, this man holds a line of flax cord, just a string, if you will, and a measuring rod. They are the measuring tapes of Ezekiel's day. The cord is for longer distances the staff or the rod is for shorter distances. So, obviously, this tour is going to require that he take measurements along the way. That's why he has to pay such close attention because it's important for the readers to understand the details of what he's seeing the size, the dimensions. And as you can see, the distances that we'll, we'll see measured later will give you a whole new appreciation for how big the place is. And it's from this point in the text you begin a description of the millennial temple. And it moves sort of from an outward court inwardly looking at the building, and then later we go out and we look at the land. And the description will culminate in chapter 43 with the return of the Lord in His glory to occupy the temple. Now if you've done the study from the outset, you may remember earlier in the book when the Lord's uh, glory leaves the temple right before Nebuchadnezzar's invasion. And it goes out in a series of stages, moving from west to east, eventually on the Mount of Olives, and then it's gone. Well, you're going to see the glory of God returning in a similar way in reverse. Okay? That comes in chapter 43. But before we look at any of that, the very fact that there's a temple, which obviously includes sacrificial worship, the fact that that stuff exists in the temple, I'm sorry, in the kingdom, raises questions raises a lot of questions. Typically, believers get stuck right on that first concept before they go any deeper. That is, why does a temple exist? What, what's its purpose? And most importantly, how do we reconcile that with the New Testament teaching on Jesus's sacrifice, right? And over the centuries, you're going to find theologians have dealt with this in a variety of ways. Many of them just recoil at the whole prospect of a return to a sacrificial system Uh, In the kingdom. And so as a result, many reject it. They reject Ezekiel's book from the canon in some cases, and historically that's been done. Or they just ignore it, as many do today. I've heard more than a few people tell me, I can't believe you're teaching Ezekiel. I I don't think anyone I've ever heard has taught Ezekiel before, you know? Isn't that funny? It's one of 66 books, but we kind of pretend there's only 65. And even in the Jewish tradition, rabbis prior to Christ, in, in the centuries before Jesus, struggled with ezekiel there were many who had real struggle including it in the jewish canon because the kingdom sacrificial system is quite different from the mosaic system and they believed that the mosaic system was eternal so to see a system described in their coming kingdom which was fundamentally different than the one that had been given them under moses caused them to question whether it could be true and whether it was a contradiction and so on and so uh, there's a, there was a saying, I guess, among rabbis that a certain rabbi used you know, some 30 gallons of oil at night, burning the lamp, trying to understand how to reconcile them before he finally had a way to do it or something. It just goes to show the, tr- the struggle that's always been there. But for Christians, the greatest concern has to be with the idea that there is sacrifice taking place in a temple for the purpose of covering sin. Because we remember teaching out of our New Testament, like in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, where it says... By this we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering, time after time, the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, This is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Alright, so basic New Testament theology holds that substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross satisfies the wrath of God. And not just for one person, and not just once, But for all who place their trust in Christ and for all time. Therefore, why should God reinstitute a temple and a sacrificial system in the kingdom? We'll do that next week. Good night. No, sorry. Cliffhangers. I mean, we obviously, you know, the first instinct you have when you hear this is that it must negate the New Testament teaching. Those two things cannot. Be compatible. There has to be a contradiction here, and so before you even go looking at the temple itself, your your tendency, your your thinking, is to make it less than literal, to take it out of the literal, to stop thinking of it as truly what will happen in the future, and to start talking about it in terms of something symbolic or metaphoric, or or even in some cases history. So before we look at the temple, let's do some homework. We have to ask that question: Why does the temple exist? Why does the sacrificial system reemerge? And to understand the millennial temple you first have to understand the history of sacrifices. That is, you have to go to the very beginning of why it even happens at all. Starting, even before that, with the effect of sin itself on the human condition. So Genesis 3 is where we have to start. So Genesis 3, 7, and I'm not going to tell you the whole story of the fall, I think you pretty much know it, but I'm going to remind you of some details. Genesis 3, 7, after the sin of man and woman, we hear this, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So Adam and woman, at that stage of history, were alone on earth, enjoying the garden, without sin, without need for clothing. And then they disobeyed the word, sin entered their hearts. At that point, remember, they were married, they were comfortable together without clothes, and then suddenly that changed. As soon as they sinned, they sought to cover themselves physically. Who were they hiding themselves from? Who else could see them? No. Just each other. Just each other. You see in that effect, we'll get back to the Lord in a minute, that's a different issue. They're hiding themselves physically from each other. The only two human beings on earth. So, What you see in that moment is that as sin entered into the human heart, it resulted in an immediate loss of fellowship between two people, between God's people. Sin fundamentally changed the couple's relationship with one another. Where before they were innocent, and they were perfect in fellowship, now they were suspicious of one another. Now they had something to conceal. Now they had something to hide from one another. Anyone who's ever been married for even a day... Knows exactly what I'm talking about. Even the best marriage in the world, there's moments in which you feel some desire to conceal or hide or to, because of shame or because of regret or because you don't want to offend the other person. There's this, you don't, you do not have perfect fellowship even with a married spouse from 40 years. Sin is a constant interruption in fellowship between two human beings. No longer could they be fully known nor fully know one another because of what sin had done in the human heart. Instantly it changed them. Secret thoughts, sinful desires, shameful things entering into their minds. And as a result, they recoil from one another and they seek cover. But as serious as the physical effects of sin are, in that respect, the spiritual effects are even greater. Look at the very next verse. They hear the sound. It says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So with each other, they cover themselves in a limited sense. As God enters, they they hide their entire person from God. Spiritually, the couple also now, because of sin, suddenly perceived a vulnerability before God, because their sin had exposed them to God's wrath. This is subconscious. It's innate. It's part of the spiritual nature of humanity. It's not something that's reasoned. It's something that's felt. And their spirit within them sensed the vulnerability, and as a result, they lost opportunity for fellowship with God as well. So where before they once knew God intimately, now they could not even be in His presence. And God, for His part, could no longer dwell among man openly, because their sin demanded His judgment. So not only must man hide from God, but God must shield himself from man, which is why God made noise as he entered the garden. It was in God's providence. He knew that man had sinned. He knew that if he had come upon man in his person, he would have had to have judged man, and man would have been uh, receiving his wrath. So he makes noise as a warning that causes man to hide so that he could enter into the garden without judging man. So the effects of sin on the human condition are two sides of the same coin. Spiritually, Sin separates us from God by making us His enemy because we are opposed to His holiness and we are an affront to His justice. Physically, sin separates us from one another by making us enemies of each other because of our selfish hearts. So sin has made us spiritual enemies of God and physical enemies of each other. Now, we can certainly overcome that to a degree. We can be cordial. We can be nice to one another. We can show a degree of familial love. And in our best cases, we might even show some agape love. But it's only a measured kind of retreat from our sin. It's not a complete retreat, and it never deals with the fundamental problem of sin in our heart. Now, throughout history, what God has done in response to this has been consistent. He's offered a provision that corrects for both Problems that we outlined here, the spiritual deficit and the physical deficit, the spiritual uh, uh, problem and the physical problem. First, he corrects for the spiritual separation by offering a spiritual covering, which we receive by faith. That comes in the text of Genesis 3 at about verse 15, where he makes his promise that is often called the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. Verse 15, he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, And between your seed and her seed, he will bruise you on the head, you will bruise him on the heel. That's the hymn there, the hymns are Jesus and and the devil, but what he's saying is, he's promising that through Adam and woman, particularly the seed of a woman, he would bring a solution that would rectify the enemy's deception. And that seed we know from New Testament theology is Christ, that he would come, the enemy would bruise him on the heel, that is he would inflict a degree of injury which puts Christ on the cross, But Christ, in the end, would bruise him on the head. That is, he would inflict a fatal wound on Satan in the end. And this is a somewhat veiled way of saying that God will rectify what has just happened in the garden through a Savior, through a provision, who will correct through a, we now know, through his perfect life and sacrificial death, he will correct for this problem. Now, that covering is considered spiritual in nature because it depends on faith, and here's why. The sacrifice was not made in Adam's day. As Adam stood there with woman, having just sinned, God promises to make a provision for them, but the provision itself will not happen for a long time. How does Adam receive the benefits of it before it happens? He will be dead long before it comes to pass. And if he's dead before it comes to pass, how can he gain the benefits of it? Because it is appointed to man to die once, and then comes judgment. Well, God made a system by which you can obtain the benefits of that once-for-all covering, without waiting for it to happen, or for that matter, even if it's happened before you were born, by putting faith in the promise of it. By putting faith in the promise of it, God credits you with the righteousness of it, even before it happened, or in our case, after it's already happened. So this is a spiritual covering, because it's not literally happening in the moment. It's being attributed, it's being credited spiritually. And Adam, because he believed in God's promise to bring a seed through the woman he was credited with righteousness on the basis of that faith. Now, how do I know that Adam had faith in God's promise in chapter 3.15? You see that in verse 20. In verse 20, he calls his wife by a new name, Eve, the mother of the living. Previously, what was the woman's name? Woman. The woman was called woman, meaning she is of man. But now, having heard God's promise, he renames his wife. He changes her name from woman to Eve, which means mother of the living. That change in name is evidence of his faith in God's promise to bring life through his woman, through the seed of woman. God said, "I'm going to." he just said, I'm going to do this through Eve, through, through woman. And he says, hallelujah, you're no longer going to be woman. You're now Eve. You're going to be the mother of living because God says you're going to solve this problem through your seed all right later when god brought his promised messiah into the world on a certain day to make that once for all sacrifice for sin then that became the focal point of all history that's the moment in which god made the spiritual covering real for all who had put their trust in it either before it happened or for us after it happened all right so an old testament saint like adam looked forward to that day while the new testament saints today look backward to that moment But regardless of where you live in time, all saints receive their spiritual covering by faith in that one moment. Follow? All right. But Adam and woman also needed a physical covering to restore fellowship with one another. Remember, there's the spiritual separation. There's also the physical separation that's happened because of sin. Their sin had not only ruptured their relationship with God, but it had also destroyed their intimacy with one another. So in verse 21... Of Genesis 3. The Lord kills an animal, probably a lamb, and used the skin to clothe the man and the woman. That sacrifice was physical. Obviously, an animal died in that moment to make the skins that clothed them. It's not a spiritual covering. It's a physical covering. And it comes in addition to the spiritual provision that had already been given a verse earlier. And it's it's important to see that. The fact that he had already received his spiritual covering... Which saved him, just as us just as it does us, did not negate the need for God to take the next step and make a physical covering too. You notice that? It was necessary to restore physical fellowship between God's people. In that case there were only two Adam and Eve. Without it, they would have, think about it, if if he had made no physical covering for them, no sacrifice of an animal, no skins to put on their bodies, they would have continued to feel the shame that they experienced at the moment they sinned. They would continue to feel shame at their nakedness. That physical discomfort is a reflection of the inward mistrust they have toward one another. Why do you feel shameful or embarrassed if you're naked in front of someone you don't know? I mean, you can always tell yourself, well, they know what I have and I know what they have and it's all the same anyway, but it doesn't change how you feel, does it? There's something innate about us, and we, you know, n- people who don't believe in the Bible will explain it away as a cultural thing. It's not. There's no culture in the world that runs around naked. Even the most um, rudimentary life in the in the jungles, they put little things on their body at least, kind of a similar to what Adam and woman did. Even the very least is still done, and that's because there's something innate in the human consciousness that recognizes a vulnerability there with one another, and we feel it in our bodies. So once again, when covered, they experienced a degree of restoration, a degree of comfort. Moreover, that physical sacrifice offered them an object lesson on the meaning of the spiritual sacrifice. You could think of a parallel here to the way baptism works. You are baptized in the Spirit when you come to faith. The moment you're born again is your baptism in the Spirit. That's how you're born again, by the Spirit. But you don't see it. You typically don't feel it. No one else can see it. So sometimes you might wonder, did it ever happen? Well, Christ then gives us the water baptism moment as a picture of the earlier moment, as a physical way to relate to what's already happened spiritually. The physical doesn't replace the spiritual. The physical doesn't add anything to it. It doesn't even have to happen. You could go to heaven without it. But it's a way of understanding what has already happened and testifying to it. Similarly, God institutes physical sacrifice to provide a physical uh, atoning, a kind of comfort to the physical, but it also provides a picture of what we know has already happened in the spiritual. It's a way of relating one to the other. So in our case, it's a way of picturing what Christ does on the cross so that we can understand why blood atonement is a necessary part of restoring fellowship. Okay. Last detail. Notice, God must officiate over that physical sacrifice. The Lord is present when the animal is sacrificed in the garden he presides over the ritual and makes the clothing, which is to say, had Adam and woman run off in the garden and killed some animal of their own and skinned it and made their own clothes, it would not have sufficed as a sacrifice that God would have uh, ordained. If it is to be of value to us in the physical realm as a way of restoring fellowship, God must ordain and sanctify the sacrifice accordingly. All right? So, and I'll show you more of that in a minute. So let's just review what you've learned so far. Sin makes necessary a spiritual covering to restore our fellowship with God and a physical covering to restore our relationship with one another. Spiritual covering comes from a spiritual sacrifice, which is our faith in the promised provision of Christ. And physical covering comes by a physical sacrifice ordained in the presence of God. And it restores fellowship between the children of God while teaching us about Christ about spiritual things. Last thing, notice the order of those events. What comes first? First came the spiritual covering of faith in verse 20. Then came the physical covering of the animal in verse 21 of Genesis. And it will always be that way. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. You cannot reverse these. You cannot start to engage in a physical process of animal sacrifice and then think that that is a substitute for the earlier necessary spiritual sacrifice that has to cover our spiritual sin, our spiritual problem, all right? This is the pattern of the Bible. Let me just give you some examples. Noah believed in God, his faith found favor with God. We hear that in chapter 6 of Genesis. And yet after the flood as he's off the ark, what does he do? He practices animal sacrifice at altars. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, righteous by faith the Bible testifies. Yet when sin required, they also participated in God-ordained physical sacrifices, and God attended at those through the angel of the Lord. Then when Israel became a nation under Moses' leadership, the Lord codified the physical sacrifices in a more formal way under a law But faith remained the spiritual covering of God's people. But in addition to that, the Lord instituted strict regular patterns for physical sacrifice. David sacrificed. Solomon sacrificed. Daniel sacrificed. Men of faith still sacrificed under that system. And of course, where was God's Spirit ordaining those physical sacrifices? In the Holy of Holies, in the temple. That was the only place sacrifices could be done. Where God's presence ordained them, sanctified them. All right? So the law, and one other detail on the law, the law treated Israel as a nation as a single entity. So in other words, when we think about the physical in their case, it wasn't about Jews necessarily being uh, restored in fellowship with a fellow Jew. It was about a Jew being restored into fellowship with the rest of the nation, about continuing as a part of the nation. That is, if they did not keep with the physical sacrifices of the law, they were cut off from their people. They were denied the fellowship of the commonwealth of Israel. So that's how they retained their opportunity to be a part of Israel. All right, so let's jump to the church period of history. Do you still find those same two sacrifices at work for the church? Yes, you do. Now, of course, the first one's easy. We're we're reconciled to God by faith in Christ. That is our spiritual covering. And I think you knew that already. What's our physical covering? What's our physical sacrifice? Well, Well, there is one for us in the church. It's also for the purpose of restoring earthly fellowship and also for the purpose of teaching us about Christ. Our physical sacrifice is also performed in the presence of God. So you're wondering right now, where and how do we provide or perform physical sacrifices in the presence of God? Well, the key to understanding that is to first recognize where does God dwell? Because remember, you cannot perform a physical sacrifice without God's presence, for that's the way it's ordained and sanctified. In Genesis 3, he was dwelling directly with man and woman in the garden, in their presence. During the period of the patriarchs, the Lord attended to them as the angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, So sacrifices happened wherever the angel of the Lord set up altars. In Moses' time, it was that physical building where the Shekinah glory of God dwelled. Today, the presence of the Lord is not located in a certain place. He doesn't come and go. The Bible says he is resident inside every believer, remaining there forever. 1 Corinthians 6.19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? All right? So if our body is the temple of our time, and therefore the Spirit of God resides within us, and that's where the, the glory of God is found in this world right now, then that would mean that your physical body is also the place of your physical sacrifice, your physical covering. Your body is the place where God presides over your physical sacrifices. And here's how Paul describes them in chapter 12 of Romans, verse 1. He says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul says you present your body As a living sacrifice to God in this age, in His presence, that is, in the fact that He rules within us, and that is your spiritual service of worship. So, to make a comparison, just as the Israelites brought animals to God in a physical temple and made sacrifices for their physical covering, you're doing something very similar. Except in this age, there's no physical temple, and nor are we under the law of Moses, which is where animal sacrifice was demanded. Instead, you're under the law of Christ, and in the law of Christ, different kinds of sacrifices are demanded, personal sacrifices. What do you sacrifice? You sacrifice your flesh in its desires. You sacrifice the comforts of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, in obedience to Christ's commands, and serve the body of Christ in that sacrificial mindset. And in that way, you obtain your physical covering for sin. Remember, what does the physical covering do? It restores fellowship among God's people. Act according to Romans 12.1, and I assure you, you will be restoring fellowship among God's people. You will be covering your sin, which is the dividing point among people. And here's another piece of interest out of that uh, part of Romans. If you know the structure of Romans, chapters 1 through 8 is a, is a story of how you're uh, justified, how you, how you come to faith and how you're saved, and all the consequences of it. And then... 9, 10, 11 are sort of a sidebar on Israel. And then Paul gets back to the main thought in chapter 12. Chapters 12 through 16 of Romans are a list of ways in which the church is called to sacrifice themselves in service to Christ. He goes through a list of areas of life in which we are to live sacrificially for Christ. What am I saying? Well, Paul opens chapter 12, that section on personal sacrifices, with a call to worship saying the way you worship in this day and age is to sacrifice like was always the case, but in this time you're going to sacrifice yourself. And here's what that looks like. So what I'm saying is this. In effect, Romans 12 through 16 describes a sacrificial system for the New Testament believer. It's the equivalent of Exodus for us, in that it describes what sacrifice looks like. Remember, the the system of worship for Israel under the law was going to a building with animals, The system of worship, Paul says, what is your spiritual service of worship? It is sacrificing yourself in its fleshly desires for the sake of Christ. So our system looks very different in that respect from an Old Testament system, but that's because, as I said earlier, the house of God is so different today. This is all turning on where God lives. The the physical sacrifices all turn on where God lives. When he lived... Uh, in the garden it was in the garden when he lived as a as the angel of the lord in the pillar of cloud and fire it, it happened in the desert on a rock altar when he lives in a house it happens in the house and when he lives in your body it happens in your body so the sacrifices we make today in that sense are accomplishing the same purposes as those that were made in past times they just have a very different character to them so as you and i sin against one another The Bible calls us to make sacrifices in God's presence, which is a way of saying, in the Spirit, let the Spirit guide that activity, in the Spirit as opposed to in the flesh. And in doing so, we atone and restore fellowship with one another. By no means does this save us. It has no bearing on our relationship to God. That's by faith, and that's by a different sacrifice. This has to do with our physical covering in restoring fellowship with one another. So, In the past, you had to travel to a certain building, you had to take the life of an animal that you valued and was worth a significant amount of money, and you had to make a sacrifice of your time and effort and money through that process to restore fellowship. What did it do? Well, a couple of things. It reminded the Jew of that day that there's a cost of sin and they didn't like to pay that price, and it gave them an incentive not to repeat that mistake in the future because they wouldn't have to go through that whole process again and give up another cow or another sheep or whatever else was required. Right? It was an incentive to stop sinning against your neighbor. You won't have the need to do this anymore. As 1 Samuel says, "Right, I desire obedience rather than sacrifice. All right, What are we to do? In our world today, we have the same thing. We are called to sacrifice our fleshly desires. And I assure you, having to say you're sorry and repent and change is a hard thing to do. It's better not to sin in the first place. It'll cause you to have less division in fellowship as it covers you. All right, So, By our sacrifice of pride and self-interest for the sake of the love of others, we restore fellowship within the body. That's, by the way, why you're called a priest. That's why we're all priests in the New Testament age, because we all have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. Therefore, we are all qualified to officiate over sacrifices before the altar. We are the altar. Therefore, we are capable of sacrificing. Therefore, we are all priests, by definition. Those physical sacrifices are how you worship God. And they are not contradictory to your spiritual dependence on Christ. Do you see that? You're no less dependent on spiritually, your spiritual sacrifice to Christ. It's, no, it's not contradictory to New Testament theology to say that you still have obligations to make physical sacrifices as a way of restoring fellowship in, a, in an age of sin. It's always been that way. It continues to be that way. And Paul says it this way in Philippians 2.3. He says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men." Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, when you depend on Christ's sacrifice for your spiritual covering, while at the same time performing physical sacrifices for the sake of restoring fellowship with others, you're not just doing what the Bible says, you're actually modeling what Christ did, or you're following what Christ did. He had no sin of his own, but he made himself a physical sacrifice to serve the interests of the body of Christ. We have been declared righteous by faith in Christ, so we also make physical sacrifices to establish fellowship within the body of Christ. Right? We do that even though you believe in Christ for your salvation. So as long as sin exists, the Bible will always require both that there be a spiritual sacrifice and a physical sacrifice. So let's jump to the kingdom for a moment. Let's remember what we already know about life in the kingdom. From what we've learned in earlier lessons, we know sin will continue to exist within the kingdom world. Now, again, for you, for anyone here who may have just dropped in on the study and don't know what I'm talking about, uh, the saints who have been resurrected prior to the kingdom—that would mean Old Testament saints, church saints, that's us, tribulation saints—all of those will come into the kingdom in a glorified body. So we will have been resurrected already. We will not possess sin, and therefore, us there is no sacrifice. Going on. We will not participate in the sacrificial system. We have no sin to cover, physical or otherwise. But the natural believers who walk into the kingdom out of the tribulation, they believe and that's why they come in. But as natural men and women, they can marry and have children. And their children come out of the womb just as have children have always come out of the womb, unbelieving. And as a result, they reproduce and fill the world again, repopulate the world again with sinful humanity, some of whom come to faith, others who do not. But in general, they're all still sinful. They still have the the nature of Adam. And since sin still exists in the kingdom, the need for covering will still exist in the kingdom, both spiritual and physical. So once again, faith in the once and for all sacrifice of Christ on the cross will be the spiritual covering of those in the kingdom. Just as an Old Testament saint's faith looked forward to a future day in that age where that provision would be made in Christ, and we look back to that day when it was already made, the saints of the kingdom will be looking that much further back to when Christ died in our age before their age. But it's still the same process. A faith in a moment that took place to cover them spiritually. For the same reason though, Physical covering for sin will also be required. And now the question comes back to what we've said a moment ago, where will God dwell in the kingdom? As he moves now to dwelling in a building again, then that necessitates the reemergence of physical sacrifices done in his presence so that they may be ordained once again, which means they have to be done at the building. right? So the nature of the kingdom sacrifice reverts back to the Old Testament style of sacrifice because God's dwelling place reverts back to the Old Testament style of dwelling in a building. God has always reserved a physical temple for his people, Israel, and only for Israel. Now, when Israel was established as a nation, that's when the Lord first established this this idea of I'm going to be in a building and I'm going to be in your presence in a building. That was when Israel was still in the desert. Eventually, it made its way to a temple, a, a, a structure that was physical and permanent. But the Lord has never set that up among any other people group, only among Israel. Now, when you get to the church age, Israel is a a nation under judgment, scattered among the world, among the other nations. And until the return of Christ, that is, until the age of the Gentiles is complete, the Bible says that that will remain the case for Israel. They remain under judgment. And so for this period of time, until the second coming, Israel is not seeing their Lord tabernacling among them. He has removed his presence from them starting with what we learned earlier in this book, back in the time of the Babylonian captivity. He left the temple. He's never been back. Okay, Now he's taken the temple down. Now they don't even, you know, up, up until recently, they didn't even have access to their temple mount or to the, the city at all. So the Lord is not tabernacling with Israel at this time. Where is he tabernacling? He is tabernacling with a people who are not his people, as he says in the Bible. That is the Gentile church. He moved out of a stone building and into the hearts of his people in in this time and age. But here's the challenge for God. If he's going to tabernacle with a nation that is not his nation, which one is he going to pick? Because there isn't just one Gentile nation. Unlike Israel being one, Gentiles are by definition everything else. He can't just pick one. They're all over the world. So God comes up with this elegant solution. He indwells every individual Gentile so that in effect he's dwelling in every Gentile nation simultaneously wherever it is, right? So that's God's approach to tabernacling in this age, is to tabernacle at the individual level in the lives of the believers. But back to the kingdom. Israel will no longer be under judgment in the kingdom. We've already learned that. They come to their fullness and glory in the kingdom as a nation on earth, chief nation on earth. And now God has to return to the promises he made to them, which is, I will dwell with you, you will be my people, I will be your God. And to keep those promises, a temple has to be rebuilt. He has to put his presence back in it. So here we are. The Lord's presence in a building again, and therefore all physical sacrifices have to happen there again. People will stream to the temple, the Bible says, regularly, and animal sacrifices will be the norm at that temple. And they accomplish in that temple exactly the same things they've always accomplished for God's people. That is they serve to restore fellowship among god 's people while teaching about the meaning of christ 's sacrifice, and if someone does not participate in the physical sacrifices of the temple, they are cut off from fellowship with the rest of god 's people. You hear this for example in zechariah fourteen sixteen this is a brief mention of what would go on in the in the time of the kingdom uh, verse sixteen of chapter fourteen it says Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. When it says to worship, the term worship, when you're thinking about a sacrificial system, worship always involves sacrifice. We don't have a sacrificial system of that sort now, so when we think of worship, it doesn't include that. We worship in spirit and in truth. In their day, and as it was in Israel's day, to worship meant to go to the temple and engage in temple practices. So. When he says everyone has to go up and worship, he's talking about this practice of animal sacrifice in conjunction with the Feast of Booths in this case. So one final note. Sacrifices are covering for sin, so this system is only used for those who have sin. All right. So those of us who are glorified will have no sin, therefore we will not make sacrifices. Our role seems to be limited to governing uh, and perhaps to be priests. In Isaiah 66, uh, we hear this, 66:18. He says, For I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and will send survivors from them to the nations. Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshech, Tubal, and Javan to the distant coastlands that have never heard my fame or seen my glory. They will declare my glory among the nations. Then they will bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses, in chariots, in litters, on mules and on camels, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in on a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, and I will take some of them, meaning some of those Gentiles, I will take some of them for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. So in the temple system of the kingdom, Gentiles are also included in the priesthood. So that might indicate that's our closest approach to this process. I'm not sure. So that's our background. So I hope as we get now back into chapter 40, we're only going to do a bit of 40 tonight just to get you into the the study of the temple. But tonight for me was mostly going to be about making sure that we all understand when we look at these sacrifices, it does no violence to our New Testament theology. It's a continuation of all that God's ever done. We actually sit at a point in history that's quite unique in that God's temple is in a body, not in a building, that it's for the Gentiles, not for the Jews. It's never really been that way at any other time, and it will revert back to where it's always been in the kingdom. So it's truly a unique period of history. The challenge then for us is you cannot judge God's plan or pattern very well when you do so from the perspective of a unique moment. Follow me? If the pattern is you know a b c d and then x y z and we're seven in the middle of it you can't judge god's pattern by what you see in your little piece of a larger puzzle because the puzzle's so different on either side of you you really have to step back and look at it historically and realize oh we're the exception not the other way around at the same time you realize that the sacrifices that god made for us spiritually have never been any different and nothing in the physical changes that all right Let's go back to Ezekiel 40 for a brief time. We have about five minutes, and all I want to do is give you a taste of what we're going to be doing. As a warning, I guess, in the weeks to come, at least the next couple, when we go through the next several chapters, it's a lot of cubits and, and walls and, and cubits. And the challenge there is you're just your mind's going to kind of go mushy. So your goal, your goal here is not to understand the um, architecture. Uh, let's go into chapter 40. Just look at verse 5 for a second. It says, and behold, there was a wall on the outside of the temple, all around. And in the man's hand was a measuring rod of six cubits, each of which was a cubit and a handbreadth. So he measured the thickness of the wall, one rod, and the height, one rod. So, start with the outside of a building, along a wall that runs in four sides around a structure. And that outer wall, in this case, is being measured. And to just sort of do the translation for you from cubits and hand handbreadths and all the rest, uh, the wall is 10 feet high, 10 feet thick. And it runs as a square, more or less, around the courtyard uh, of this temple. The outer wall has gates, of course, because otherwise you couldn't get in. And now we get to hear the description of the first of these gates, the east gate, and it goes from starts in verse 6 i'm going to just we'll just do the gates tonight and then we'll finish it says in verse 6 then he went to the gate which faced east went up its steps and measured the threshold of the gate one rod in width and the other threshold was one rod in width the guard room was one rod long and one rod wide and there were 5 cubits between the guard rooms and the threshold of the gate by the porch of the gate facing inward was one rod then he measured the porch of the gate facing inward one rod He measured the porch of the gate, eight cubits, and its side pillars, two cubits, and the porch of the gate was faced inward. The guardrooms of the gate toward the east numbered three on each side. The three of them had the same measurement. The side pillars also had the same measurement on each side. Then he measured the width of the gateway, 10 cubits, and the length of the gate, 13 cubits. There was a barrier wall one cubit wide in front of the guardrooms on each side, and the guardrooms were six cubits square on each side. He measured the gate from the roof of one guard room to the roof of the other, a width of 25 cubits from one door to the door opposite. He made the side pillars 60 cubits high. The gate extended round about to the side pillar of the courtyard. From the front of the entrance gate to the front of the inner porch of the gate was 50 cubits. There were shuttered windows looking toward the guard rooms and toward their side pillars within the gate all around and likewise for the porches. And there were windows all around inside and on each side pillars were palm tree ornaments. All right, this is going to be kind of what you see over the next several chapters. So we're going to move quickly as we go through this in the coming weeks. Meanwhile, let's just kind of get through the descriptions. You have a gate. They are elaborate chambers, like all gates and walls of that time, of ancient times anyway. You have this this multi-chambered room that sits in the wall, and that's where you would protect the entrance to the city, and that's also where you would do business. In this case, the gate has guards, which would seem to indicate that uh, there was concern that there could be, a problem. And even in the kingdom. And you notice the gate that the guard rooms are 10 by 10 in size. They're separated by five foot walls. They have a little uh, door that comes up about halfway so that whoever's standing in the guard room can look out over whatever's going on in the hallway. Uh, there's three on each side, six guards altogether. The doors of the gate that lead into this chambered gate are a hundred feet high. Hundred foot high doors. So the entire structure you're seeing described here is very reminiscent of Solomonic gates. The gates that were built in the times of Solomon in cities built around that period of history follow a very similar pattern, just not the same size, but in many cases very similar. When the tour group that's with me goes to the ruins of Megiddo, that's a Solomonic city, and there's gates there that are very much in this same design. So that's the first gate, that's the east gate. When you travel into the city from the east, you come in through that gate, you face the entrance to the temple door itself, the building itself. And then we hear of a passageway to a courtyard. That's in verse 17. It says, then he brought me into the outer court and behold, there were chambers and a pavement made for the court all around 30 chambers facing the pavement. The pavement that is the lower pavement was by the side of the gates corresponding to the length of the gates Then he measured the width from the front of the lower gate to the front of the exterior of the inner court, a hundred cubits on the east and on the north. You'll see that as you come in that inner gate on the east, there's a span, there's a space before you reach the next wall, the wall that that immediately surrounds the temple itself. So the names start to become confusing because we pass through an outer wall, now we're in the outer court. It's an outer court to the inner wall, if that makes sense. And he says on the outside edges of this courtyard, that is, it would be against the inside of the outer wall, there are 30 chambers or 30 rooms. They go on three sides. They're not on the fourth side, so there's 10 per side for the three walls. We're not sure what those are for. They might be meeting areas, something like what Solomon's porch did in the Temple of Herod. But the span that we're hearing in in terms of space here between the outer wall and the inner wall is 166 feet. It's 166 feet just to get from the gate that you walk in to the next wall on the inner side. Okay, We're going to stop there, but it's, it's going to get worse next week, so sorry. Uh, again, the goal here is not to have a thorough understanding of the architecture. The goal is to have an appreciation for the specificity of it all, the size first of all, and then the specificity, because in the specifics, you're moving away from any temptation to interpret it allegorically. As specific as it is, it's clearly a real thing. Ezekiel's being walked around it with somebody measuring it to make sure he understands this is a real building. This is the size of it. And in that respect, you know it's true. Uh, In any event, we'll come back into it in chapter 40 next week and move onward from there. We're going to get through the rest of the gates, the walls, the inner parts of the temple, and all the rest before we look at how it operates. And uh, I think I told you last week, we move pretty quickly through the rest of the book because of the nature of what this material has for us, right? You're not going to dwell on anything for too long. All right, let's pray. Go into Q&A as we do always for any who'd like to stick around. Thank you, Father, first of all, for our spiritual covering in Christ. How pointless it would be, Father, if we were only given the option of a physical covering. It would do us no good and could never solve the the problem that has separated us from you. And yet, Father, so many in the world seek for only that solution. Something physical, something in their own power, something of their works uh, to Restore in them some sense that you are on their side. And, Father, the Bible is so utterly clear that that is a hopeless endeavor. We thank you, Father, that because it was hopeless, you did it for us. And likewise, Father, we thank you for the the physical covering that you've provided to us, uh, ordained for us through sacrifices of one kind or another, so that even as we await our glorified time in your presence, we might still see uh, a restoration of sorts in the meantime with our brothers and sisters, with those who also know you. And that we could feel as one in a community under your care. We thank you for those two provisions, Father, and all that has come from them. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.